You're listening to My HR Buzz, brought to you by My HR Concierge. Hosted by Chris Cooley, we'll bring you various topics and guests to shed light on the often confusing world of HR and also employee screening. We'll be putting the human in human resources. I want to thank you for joining us today on the My HR Buzz podcast. Uh, and I do want to remind you, you can find us and all the normal uh, podcast spots such as iTunes and Spotify. And we we do uh, want you to go ahead and subscribe to that so that you always have the most up-to-date information. And today we're going to talk about what I think is a, is a, is a great topic. It's one that we get a ton of questions about, and it's one that um, is, is really a hot topic right now. And that's related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, or you may have heard it as DEI. Um, that's kind of a hot acronym right now. And uh, we have with us today, Wendy Shelton. Uh, she's with Nippus Healy and Galt um, Law Firm. She's been practicing labor law for, for 30 or more years uh, and has been a great friend of our firm and, and uh, somebody that, that we lean on. And uh, we really appreciate you joining us today, Wendy. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, Chris. Absolutely. We, and I think this will, I think this will be a fun podcast. And so, so one of the things um, as it relates to DEI, Wendy, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about it. You know, what is it? Um, can you give us kind of an overview of, of what that, of what it is and what it entails? Yes. Just briefly, diversity as we know, is the presence of differences in any given setting. In our workplaces, that can mean differences in race, ethnicity, gender, or any other number of protected categories. Inclusion is the practice of making sure that people, all people, feel included, meaning they have a sense of belonging and support from the organization. For our purposes today, I believe that we are interested in diversity and inclusion in the employment setting. And by that, I mean making sure that employees entering the workplace with gender identities and expressions different than what we might expect are comfortable, protected, and feel they belong in our workplaces. Okay, thank you for that. And and I think I, I know we we've worked with a lot of clients just as you do. Um and a lot of the um the gender identity, uh, I know a lot of them struggle with that as far as how to address that, how to address that com- in a compliant manner. Um and I know that you know it's um we hear a lot about the gender pronouns, uh, but there's a lot more to it than that. Um it, it as an employer from a risk perspective, it relates to things such as grooming standards. Um, how do they have, you know, do they have gender on an application? How does it relate to FMLA and ADA? So there's a lot of components here that, that, that this really um, hits, if you will. So, you know, one of the things that I always like to do when we talk about different topics is, is really get out on the front. So what's the risk, right? Is this a significant issue from a risk perspective? And today, we're not talking about the social, the political, any of those things. We're really just talking about what's the risk that an employer has as it relates to gender identity. So, so Wendy, where does this fall? What, what, you know, what law does this fall under? What's the risk if, if someone does run afoul of this? Or, or 
you know, just says, Hey, I'm not going to, I'm not even going to address it or worry about it. What, what's the risk that they may have? Well, there is certainly a risk. The United States Supreme Court has ruled that discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity is, quote, because of sex, close quote, and is prohibited under Title VII. So any employer with 15 or more employees runs the risk of being sued by the EEOC or by the employee if they discriminate against someone on the basis of their sexual orientation or gender identity. Additionally, there may be state laws in play that protect individuals from discrimination based on their sexual orientation or gender identity. Okay. So so there is there is risk just like in the past if there was any kind of discrimination um, based on uh, race or religion or any of those things. It, it, this falls right under that. Um, so, so let me ask you this. It's specifically around gender pronouns because we get, we get a lot of questions about that. Um, what constitutes, you know, discrimination there? Um, because I know, you know, from our perspective, um, we work with clients uh, and we have worked with uh, individuals and, and we may use a, a feminine pronoun originally, um, and then they correct us and say, no, we want to use this pronoun. And so we move forward with that one. Um, if someone just makes a general mistake such as that, is, is that discrimination? Uh, kind of where do those lines fall? A mistake or a one-time uh, incident would likely not constitute discrimination. Discrimination is generally an intentional act. For example, if someone asks you to use the they pronoun and you don't do it and you keep referring to that person as a he, for example, then you might be looking at discrimination because you have intentionally uh, ignored the request. Okay. And, and, and does that also follow into, I mean, I, I can see a rabbit hole here. So now... Uh, what about company emails? What about when you're in a meeting? Um, you know, how does all that work as far as pronouns? Because I know, you know, historically we use he or his, right, from a generic perspective. Um, and now, you know, if you do that in these corporate emails or or, or meetings, is, is, does that kind of constitute discrimination? Or how should employers address in, in those situations? I think in light of the recent Supreme Court decision, employers should be more careful. As you said, we have in the past just used he maybe with a footnote that we mean everyone when we say he. I'm not sure that's really acceptable at this point when we have been instructed uh, that we should behave differently and that we should be more sensitive I think now employers must be more careful to use gender neutral pronouns whenever possible. They, them, theirs, as best they can. Okay. Um, And so, and kind of walking down that path a little bit. um, So, so from those communications, we need to make sure that we're, we're doing that uh, using those more generic pronouns. Um, What about, I mean, are there particular policies um, or, or, or should an employer 
let me back up. Should an employer ask the question, you know, what pronoun would you like? Is that something that needs to come out kind of naturally where somebody is corrected uh, in more of a one-on-one setting? I mean, what's your thoughts on that? I would not think that asking about it would be a particularly good idea because in that case, you might be setting yourself up for a claim that you treated someone differently unless you ask that question of every single employee. So I think more just be sensitive and avoid categorizing to the extent that you can. If it does come up, then respect the the preference that's given to you by the employee. But I think it's better to let the employee take the lead in those conversations than to ask. I think it's better to be as neutral as possible until you know differently. Okay. No, and I, th- I think that makes sense because to your point, I think putting somebody on the spot and asking that question could, um, you know, make them uncomfortable or, 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 or whatever it may be. So I think that's a good, I think that's a good idea. Um, what about, are there any specific policies or anything or that, that employers should have maybe in the handbook or does this just kind of fall into most handbooks just have a general, you know, non-discrimination policy? Does this just kind of fall under there? Is there anything specific that they need to have? I think that employers would do well to review their handbooks and all policies in light of the Supreme Court's decision and the EEOC's new guidance on the matter, particularly with respect to grooming standards. If employers have different standards for male and female employees, such as things like women have to wear skirts or can't wear a particular item, those sorts of things need to be reviewed in terms of these latest rulings. And your dress code is more likely to be upheld if it's gender neutral and says things like you're required to dress professionally rather than specifying what sex can wear what. Another area to look at, the application may request gender. In most cases, that is probably not anything an employer needs to know on the front end. It may become necessary to know in personnel records down the line for benefits purposes, which raises a whole other area of concern, but it's not necessary for an application or the suggestion is being made that forms include a third option, male, female, or non-binary. That can present problems with EEO-1 forms and accurate reporting, but the EEOC has said that employers can note the non-binary category on the certification page. Another issue And this one, I think, is a problem for employers more than some of the others, but um, that issue would be bathrooms, locker rooms. Lately, I have seen more gender-neutral, single-room bathrooms because although employers can have separate male and female bathrooms, the EEOC's position is that the employer couldn't prevent a male who identifies as female from using the female restroom. 
And then also, I'm sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. And then also, as you mentioned, there could be FMLA and ADA considerations. For example, if, if an employee comes to you and says that they want to transition, to male or female, then you may have FMLA uh, considerations and or ADA considerations, depending on whether mental health treatment is involved. Okay. So in, 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 in rolling back to that, to, to what you mentioned about the bathrooms. Um, so are you seeing more, you know, we were talking about this in the office. We, we, we had a question around this the other day. Um, and the, it was a it was a plant, and they you know they have fifty sixty employees, and they have a a, a a you know a male bathroom and a female bathroom, and so the question was how do they address this? And and to your point, are you seeing is what you're seeing more employers go into that? You know now I think it's termed family bathroom, where it's a, yeah. where it's a multi gender, um, to your point, single bathroom. Um, is that kind of what you're seeing more of right now? And then people can, I guess at that point, they can kind of choose which one they need to go to. Yes, I am seeing more of that um, as well as just more signs that have both the male and the female um, emblem on them out in public at restaurants and and places like that. Um, But yes, that is, I'm definitely seeing more of that. And that's a very tricky area. I, I'm really not sure what the answer is when you have a big plant, something like what you're talking about, and, and you're used to having bathrooms with multiple stalls instead of just a single room. A single room, it's it's fairly easy to correct. You can just do what I'm seeing in a lot of places and put up the sign that shows that it's for either or both. But I really am not sure exactly what the solution is in those larger bathrooms where you just have rows of stalls. Yeah. Cause I, that, that was one of the things, you know, we were talking about because it's tough because um, you don't want to discriminate, but then also you may have some individuals that may be uncomfortable. And so you're, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to be um, um, thoughtful of both sides um, and so when you do have that, to your point, when you have a plant and they may just have, you know, 10 stalls in a bathroom, um, what do you do? How do you, how do you manage that? Um, and so I guess from an employer perspective, obviously, um, what they would need to do from a, from a risk perspective there, I mean, what, what do you do? Do you just, do you maybe have a you know, to where they can lock the door. Uh, if someone, you know, if someone wants to be in there by themselves, I mean, how, how do you, uh, yeah, I, I don't know how to address that. That's, that's a really, really tricky question. And I don't know if there's a clear cut answer unless they do go and, and add a, maybe a third option um, where they have the family bathroom model where it's a, a, it's not a gender specific. Right. And in those, you know, you can go in privately and, alone no matter what that might be the best solution it's just really not clear yet how this will will develop yeah Uh, because i could see i could see that coming back and and potentially being an issue for an employer right and then there are also going to be issues with um religious freedom and the religious freedom restoration act and uh, potentially a conflict between 
that in the Supreme Court's decision with respect to um, gender and sexual orientation. Okay. Now, how, how does, uh, just could you explain kind of how those would, uh, would differ or how those may, may contrast each other? For example, um, there are already um, statutory and, and constitutional exemptions to Title VII with respect to employment of ministers. Um, and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act prohibits the federal government from burdening an individual's free exercise of religion. Um, but if you have an employer that is a religious organization, a church, and they have religious objections, sincerely held religious beliefs that would prohibit them from uh, hiring uh, persons who are uh, transitioning or uh, persons who are homosexual, there you have a conflict between the uh, employer's or the religious organization's religious freedom and Title Seven. Okay, and so I guess in those scenarios, does it have to necessarily be a um, uh, a religious organization? Uh, I know I've seen cases, and I'm by no means a, an attorney or a case law expert, but I know I've seen them. You know, from I know Hobby Lobby had had uh, a. Uh, I believe it was Hobby Lobby that had the case on the ACA on the, uh, I believe it's birth control. Um, so does it, does it, is it just, uh, is it just religious organizations or can it be other, or is it other companies that also have maybe a, a, a religious, you know, maybe based on their religion, they, they don't agree with that. How does that work? For the most part, I've seen just the religious institution cases. For example, the um, the Catholic uh, Church's position on um, birth control and providing funding or referrals or adoption, um, participating in groups of that sort. Um, and the Supreme Court has upheld their right to uh, not participate or not accept people who, as um, adoptive parents, who don't follow their religious practices. So, uh, so far, I've seen it mostly in the context of the religious organizations, but it can stem out to the groups that they deal with. Right. And that, I think that's going to be really interesting. And, and kind of the reason I went down that path is, um, I know there are, again, this is such a social and political hot button. I know you will have organizations that um, oppose it, right, that will will go down that path. Um, so that's the reason I was kind of asking that question was I was just curious, um, you know, when that, when that arises, and I'm pretty sure it will, uh, how that will play out. Um, so... Well, You know, it's hard to say whether the, you know, whether the courts would rule that enforcement of Title VII in a particular situation with a particular uh, employer was overly burdensome to religious freedom or not. I think we'll just have to see on a case by case basis. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I I mean, to me, it's just a fascinating um, topic. And and like I said, I know we get, we get lots of questions around this. Um, uh, We do work. Uh, you know, pretty much across the country. 
So we, you know, in, in, in different areas, it seems to be more of a hot button than others, but it, it is something that, that is such a social and political hot button. And what we wanted to do today is really just talk about not, not those aspects of it, but really what's, what's the risk? What, from an employer, what should they do um, to mitigate their risk so that they don't have pi- uh, fines and penalties? And so uh, I, think, I think that was, a, um, you know, a great topic to go through. And, and I really do appreciate you being here. And is there anything else that, that maybe you wanted to add to that that maybe I missed or, uh, you know, on that topic? Not particularly. I, I would just suggest overall to employers that they be very careful about sex stereotyping at all. And to the extent possible, review all their policies to remove references to particular gender. Okay. No, and I think that's great advice. And, and I really do appreciate you being here. And what if, if someone wanted to reach out to you, maybe they had, you know, a, a legal question or something like that. How would they do that? How would they get in touch with you? My number here at the office is 601-952-2592, and I'm at extension 118, and I may be reached by email at wsheltonlaw at gmail.com. Perfect. Well, we really appreciate it, and um, we do appreciate everybody that, that listened today, and again, I do want to remind you that uh, you can get our podcast at any of the normal spots, uh, Spotify, iTunes, etc. Please subscribe. That way you're always up to date. And also, if you do have any questions, uh, you can always reach out to me. Uh, my uh, number is 855-538-6947. And my extension is 108. Um, if you have a topic, if you have a particular question, anything like that, you can also email us at podcast at myhrbuzz.com. And again, we do appreciate it and look forward to speaking with you next time.